and welcome once again to another episode of Stu Him Productions presents JM Solve the World. I am James. And I am Matt. And tonight we have a very special guest, James, if you will. Yes, this is a good friend of my grandson Cody's, Mr. Tyler Erickson. How you doing, Tyler? Doing pretty great. Had a pretty great day. Good. Met with friends and cool. I'm ready for tonight. Cool. Before we get into interviewing Tyler, I got to do a special shout out to my buddy, Bart Eichard. He called me last week, said he'd listen to our podcast, said, hope you never throw me under the bus the way you did, Jackie Drill and Brian. I was like, we haven't yet. So, <laughs> um, I would also like to welcome our new listeners. Yep. And um, we pick up five more. Yes. Cool. <laughs> and uh, we've got new subscribers on YouTube. Sweet. Uh, which we greatly appreciate. And if you like our content, give us a thumbs up. Uh, leave us a comment. Let us know what you liked. If you didn't like the, uh, the podcast, give us a thumbs down. Leave us a comment. Tell us what you didn't like. If you want us to do a special subject, there you go. leave us a comment. Let us know. Because we know a little about a lot and a lot about a little or something like that. We're jack of all trades, master yeah. of none. Right. That's why we're having this guy here tonight. Yes. Um, I met this young man last Saturday, right? Yeah. We were down shooting various guns and everything. And mm-hmm. we were standing there. We we're looking up. And he goes, oh, that's Mars right there. I'm like, yeah. I said, ain't that Venus over there? And he goes, I'm not for sure. It is a planet because it twinkles. And planets twinkle and stars don't. And then we got to talking. It's like, okay, I got to pick this guy's brain and get him on the podcast. So, so Tyler, tell us what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to piss some religious people off or some scientists well, off? or Most likely. <laughs> I mean, maybe not most likely uh, scientists mm-hmm. because Whoops. taking from what I'm studying, Genesis 1 through 11, mm-hmm. I've gotten about four chapters so far it would piss off some religious folks right some because theologians looking into cultural context of genesis mm-hmm. and we normally have a westernized thinking of what the bible is supposed to be but it's not like we're missing it it's we're missing the understanding okay we have old te- the like Old Testament Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in Qumran in 1958 with a whole few um, lead teams of uh, agnostic and Christian uh, scholars. Mm-hmm. And like take for an example, the book of Isaiah. It was found within a, uh, a vase jar in the Qumran caves and it stretches out, I believe, like 24 feet of the entire book of Isaiah. Wow. Which is insane. Right. And looking into Genesis, the reason why I wanted to study Genesis in its cultural context was to get a better idea and understanding and to be closer with God. Mm-hmm. And so something wasn't up with um, the earth being 6,000 years old. Okay. Which I, several years ago, I was a Christian ap- apologist, like newly begun my faith in Christ mm-hmm. and started looking to apologetics. Right. Apologetics comes from the Greek word uh, apologia, right. which means defense or reason for faith. Mm. And so 
something didn't make me feel right with thinking that the earth was 6,000 years old and we're just translating this from a Western mindset. And so I asked, what is it like in an ancient Near Eastern mindset? Because they thought entirely different. And so I was kind of struggling with it, just getting destroyed by like, you know, atheist or skeptics that would go against this. And I'm just sitting there wondering, could it be possible if evolution were true, could it be theistically evolutionary possible? Mm-hmm. And so luckily out of nowhere, I got into this guy called Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy, his YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. He's been doing this for, I think about nine, 10 years okay. on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And he's gotten me a lot into theistic evolution, which I'll be looking into later on. Mm-hmm. And he's also done a series of Genesis 1 through 11 and its cultural context with uh, scholars and archaeologists. Okay. So, what do you say? The Western philosophy is basically taking things too literal? Yes. So, whenever we're looking at the text of Genesis, we're not supposed to be taking it literally, but more literarily. There are instances of where we need to take it literal, such as conversation-wise, but in a lot of it, there's a lot of Egyptian customs. Why? Because Moses and God's people came out of Egypt, Mm -hmm. and Moses was the one that wrote Genesis, not just only him, but the scribes, because it wouldn't make sense for him to write it if he's long dead after, you know, the passage says so. Right. And so, looking into this for Christians, I know they may not agree with a this view, and I highly respect it, but mm-hmm. what I would have to say is that um, if we're going to view Genesis and its cultural context, it would be disrespectful in order, like, for us to translate in our way instead of how they thought. Right, and we have no idea how people thought back then well i mean somewhat you know what i mean though it wasn't like we've got recordings of people back then or nothing you know like like a thousand years from now as long as we don't blow ourselves up or yeah get killed by meteorites there's gonna be records right how we lived now you know well and if you look at it uh only the catholics in in western civilization only the catholics uh, religion or Catholicism, they're the only ones that don't use the King James version of the Bible. And, you know, the, the biggest thing with the King James is a man changed. You know, we don't know how much was changed, mm-hmm. but he changed it to the way that he wanted it. Mm-hmm. So well, it's, it's like... Eh. There's interpretation because they're transferring the language too right transfiguration or transliteration right you know i mean because in some languages there's not a word for compassion or whatever right you know i mean so translating those ancient scrolls into greek right especially like new greek words that were combined together in order to make new ones like for an example whenever it refers to like um what example would i use uh like, for an example, homosexuality was, like, parted in into uh, the Bible in 1948, if I'm correct. Okay. But it actually takes up to the two uh, sub-up groups of words, 
arsene coites, arsene meaning bed, and the coites meaning men that are bedding with men, mm. which configures to homosexuality. And it was referred, it was made up by Paul. Paul was a, um, he was a Pharisee, if I'm correct, and he was taught under the teachings of Galilean, which, which was con, um, considered to be the greatest uh, Jewish teacher in that time. Mm-hmm. And this would also indicate that even though we don't know much about Paul or, or known as Saul of Tarsus' parents, they were rich, mm-hmm. and he went into school early in his childhood. If you look into, like, you know, how Jewish guy kids got brought up into education back then mm-hmm. in the first century. And so Saul of Tarsus was a renowned um, Pharisee. He was very well respected. He had the knowledge of Cicero, Aristotle. Like you can actually look into the epistles of Christ, how he uses their type of arguments for the defense of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And, um, like Saul of Tarsus was a very vicious man as well. He hunted down and murdered Christians. Okay. And whenever he was on the road of Damascus, according to Acts, Christ appeared to him, changed his life, and then he spent like three years somewhere and he came back preaching the gospel of Christ. Mm. And so so there's a little bit. <laughs> right. Of course maybe he went off and had a mushroom trip and that changed his attitude. Not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, mushroom trips, I can understand how you're able to see dreams and visions, mm-hmm. you know, hallucinogenics that can, you know, send chemicals into the mind. But right. this is very irregular on how, like, if you look at the very teachings of Christ mm-hmm. and look at how mushrooms have affected, you know, cults, this mm-hmm. is very far off. Right. The virtues and ethics of Christianity has upheld and helped the Western world, like, it's literally built the Western mind, which is very argu- arguable by uh, a New Testament agnostic named, and I'm not joking, his name's Tom Holland. Oh, okay. not, the, not the Spider-Man one, but I actually got his book called you know Dominion. Yeah. Called uh, Dominion, how uh, the Christian mind or Christianity built the Western mind. Mm-hmm. And he goes into that, which I think that's what I should probably do later on, because... Not just only that, but Michael Jones, which I would say he's like, you know, my teacher mm-hmm. on like learning this type of stuff. Right. Um, he actually goes into like how there's like actual like data analysis evidence of how Christian virtues and ethics have actually brought forth better things in the world. Mm-hmm. Like obviously there were uprisings of evil and, you know, it oh, just yeah. goes up right. and down. But we some are, evil's been done in the name of Christianity. And, yeah, <laughs> you know the Crusades. Jeez, <laughs> oh, oh, but um, Adolf Hitler. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he kissed babies. You know, know. Oh, I love babies, yeah. not the Jew kinds. Yeah, oh, <laughs> even though I'm part Jew. Um, oh, what was he? Yeah, yeah. His mother, H- his mother was Jewish. His mother was oh Jewish. My gosh. Yeah. Well, and, and if you and, and honestly, he wasn't even German. He was Austrian. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he tried to get into the Austrian army and during World War One, and they're like, uh, you're okay. not even strong enough to carry a freaking gun. Right. <laughs> so he went to Germany, and Germany was taking everybody because like they, anyone. they wanted to build the biggest army in the world. Yep. And that's how he got just built. He, he was a courier. He yep. basically carried notes and orders from one trench 
to another trench. <laughs> well, and if you look at it, his so-called master race, blonde hair, blue eyed. He was neither. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, what, what you're bringing up, Tyler, and I, I've got to take a line from a movie, um, Dogma. Okay. It, it, but it, it makes sense from what Chris Rock said. To have an idea can be changed, mm -hmm. but to have a belief, you can't. Mm -hmm. It's great to have an idea. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Bible is to give you ideas, and then you <coughs> form your own conclusion or your, your own, um, I mean, you, you've got a guideline there. Uh, biggest thing, like we just talked about, um, one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Mm -hmm. Now, some people look at it as uh, using it in curse words or whatnot. But if you look at the Crusades, you're... It's normally you, about like what you do in, in his name by, your, by the will. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if everyone is... God's children. And, you know, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Mm -hmm. So why would you eradicate a whole race of people because they don't believe in your God? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, yep. if you look at it, Muslims believe in Allah. Right. And some Western uh, thinkers would say, well, Allah and God, they're, they're one and the same. But the Greeks, exactly. The well, Greeks they, and the Romans they, believed in Zeus and Poseidon and the uh, the ancient gods. The Egyptians with Ra and Horus and Set and you know. It, but but, it, but if you look at the three, what we call major religions, Muslim, Christianity, and Judaism, mm -hmm. they all came from the same starting point. It's just that. Um, I don't remember, was it Isaac or I'm not that first of my Old Testament, but that's where the Muslims split off from mm -hmm. the Jews. And then it went on, and of course we know where the Christianity came from after right. Christ came and everything. Yeah. But the three it's have their, 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 their basic start was in the same place. Right. It's believed, I'm not entirely sure if this is true in Islam, but um, whenever Abraham cheated on his wife with uh, Hagar and conceive Ishmael. Ishmael is said to be, you know, what their, his descendants is what brought forth, brought forth Muhammad. Okay, that's the, I, I knew it was so. somewhere. Yeah, I did it was somewhere in that so. part. That's kind of where the, wrong, I think so. you're right because I think that's where the split was. But if you look back, because the, God, the beginning point, Adam and Eve and everything, that's where all religions came from. I don't know if Islam talks about Adam and Eve in the Quran or not. I'm or pretty sure it. They do. Yeah. I they mean, talk they talk about Jesus, so they have to have to, to right. talk about Adam right. and Eve. Well, but and, and Muhammad was not a savior. He was a prophet. Yes. Uh, not just only that, but he was but the I mean, Lord. Right. But I mean, you know, he goes down in history. He, you know, he wasn't a savior like Jesus. Right. Like Christians believe that Jesus was a savior. And, you know, and Jews, they, they believe in Jesus. They just don't think he was the savior. They just think he was a prophet. Right. Right. But the thing is, is unlike... Uh, Christianity and Judaism in Muslim cultures y there is no uh, 
pictures or drawings or anything of Muhammad mm-hmm. because they believe that that is sacrilege. And right. it's supposedly that's what happened with the whole Benghazi thing, but that's... And only South Park is BS. big enough to get away with it. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I swear, know, they attack everybody. I mean, so South, yes. Park, South Park are... They're Teflon, man. You can't touch them. Well, okay. <laughs> they attack everyone. And they don't give a fuck. <laughs> but the thing is, is and, and this is something that some may or may not know, but Trey Parker and Matt Stone are Jewish. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if, I mean... Because some groups have have tried to go after him, and then it just kind of fizzles out. Right. It's that yeah. wet bottle rocket. Yeah. He's like, yeah, wait, hold up. I mean, will there ever be another show no. on Comedy Central or any other channel like South Park? No. Nobody can get away with it now. Exactly. But they're grandfathered in, and they're going to just stick it to whoever they want to. Mm-hmm. They don't care. <laughs> it, you know, it... But it, it, again, it's it's like we have talked about with Blazing Saddles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Blazing Saddles couldn't be made today because so many people are narrow-minded and right. with the use of the N-word and everything, but they don't want to look at who wrote that movie. Right. Three prominent Jewish comedians or writers and a very prominent, famous black comedian. Right. Although his new uh, 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 History of the World World Part (laughs) 2, I was watching that going, wow, I guess they can still do that today. (laughs) So, Tyler, what what made you decide you to go down this rabbit hole? I mean, because, you know, nothing derogatory here, but most young men your age are are more into Xbox and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) But you've you've put devoted a lot of time and stuff and research and that just I mean the information you're getting is nothing new. It's it's out there available, but people just got to dig for it. Yeah, they got to dig for it. Yeah. So, what really got me into this was um, I really wanted to understand like what is it like to be an interdimensional being that created an entire universe that inspired this book and came in human flesh. Mm-hmm. You know, from looking at the start point, like um, looking at the phrases such as, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense in a literal sense. Right. How can God create, like materially create the heavens and the earth while the earth is formless and void? Mm. And so to really get a really big understanding of how to read an ancient Near Eastern text is a simple scenario. Imagine I'm an ancient Near Eastern person about 4,000 years ago, while you're a modern-day Western person, like today. Okay. So let's just say you got some cows out there, right? Mm-hmm. And whenever you would look at a cow, a Western mind would think of it as properties. You know, Steak. its height, its weight stake what it's materially right, right. made out of where it biologically comes from mm-hmm. you know you can notice those features mm-hmm. you know you know where it comes from right i mean they knew what they where it came from so it's not like they had no idea right but for me an ancient near eastern person three to four thousand years ago and i would look at the cow and i think what is its purpose and direction what is the material's purpose Mm-hmm. The material's purpose or direction 
like its existence is dependent on its purpose and direction. I'm not denying that, you know, without a purpose and direction, mm-hmm. it doesn't have a material. It becomes unproductive on, you know, chaotic in a sense. Okay. And so this is how Genesis from chapters 1 through 11 needs to be translated. And many of the Old Testament pastors, what was that? Somebody went to the bathroom. Oh. Uh. <laughs> Hopefully we don't hear him. <laughs> Has that happened? I, I'm waiting for the lightning bolts to start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going super sandwiches. But from, I have about, I'm going to try to look like simplify this as much as I can. I have about like 91 pages. Okay. <laughs> so. Stay tuned. Stay yeah. tuned. So. Here we first start off as Genesis chapter 1 and God said. So I'd like to read a quote here by uh, Michael Jones. It's in, a, it's in the beginning of the video of Genesis 1. He says, There has been a plethora of interpretations that have been offered to try to explain what Genesis 1 is saying. I do not pretend to be doing anything different here. However, I feel it as many as in the past had not factored the cultural context into the account of, of when reading Genesis, and that has led many trying to interpret the text through their cultural understanding. So whenever we look at an ancient text, for an example, Genesis, we try to, um, we try to interpret it in our in modern, modern, modern understanding, right. which it's, it doesn't really add up, mm-hmm. which you'll see here soon. This really is not a fair assessment of the text. We constantly want to force Genesis in our cultural norms, and the hard reality is that the culture of the biblical world was different than ours in many ways. The first assumption we have is our understanding of what something is or what makes something a thing is, purpose and and direction, the cow analogy. Mm -hmm. This seems to be intuitive. We hardly question that another culture might have viewed this differently, but evidence suggests otherwise. So, when looking into an ancient Near Eastern text, whenever something is trying to describe purpose and direction, you would expect other texts to do so otherwise. So, I naturally start off with a quote here by uh, John Walton in his book, The Lost World of Genesis, page 24. People in the ancient world believed that something existed not by virtue of its material properties, but by the virtue of it having a function in an ordered system. In this sort of functional ontology, the sun did not, does not exist by virtue of its material or even by its function as a burning ball of gas. Rather, it exists by the virtue of the role that it was given in the first place, its fear of existence, particularly in the way that it functions for mankind and human society. Consequently, something could be manufactured physically but still not exist as a purpose if it, is, if it has not become functional. So the material is still there, but it's real existence. It's whenever it's purposed and directed. So back to the cow analogy, for an ancient Near Eastern person, what is the material's purpose and function? For instance, the cow, Mm -hmm. to plow the field, to give milk, Mm -hmm. to use its bones for tools. It's for food, Mm -hmm. basically for any necessity need. 
right. purpose and direction. That's, you know, the core main things of Genesis 1 through 3. Mm-hmm. And then it'll go a little bit off at chapter 4. Right. And so what I'd like to do is bring up some ancient mythical texts in order to get really bring evidence of that since okay. in that time, cultures such as the Enuma Elish or the epics of Trahasis, the Assyrian Carrefour tablet, they had these three different type of clauses, a dependent clause, circumstantial clause, and I forgot the third one, but it's in here. <laughs> so I'd like to read the, uh, the Enuma Elish. So it first starts off with uh, when. All of these passages always start off with when. And this is also a reason why um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, the phrase is never shown in the Greek or Septuagint um, Hebrew syntax. Okay. So it's actually supposed to be tra- translated when God began to create the heavens and the earth. And there's another key phrase for create, which means bara or barang. It normally can refer to material, literal uh, creation, mm-hmm. but most of the time it refers to what the purpose and function. And so I'd like to read from the Enuma Elish. It first starts with, um, when, when on the heaven was not named, the earth beneath did not yet bear a name. And primeval Apsu, which is a mythical god, who begat them, and chaos, Tamut, the mother of them, both. Their waters were mingled together, and no field was formed. No marsh was to be seen, when of the gods none of them had been called into being, and none bore a name, and no destinies were ordained. So, whenever it's referring to, like, no this, no land, no light, no bearings of the land, it's talking about a chaotic state. Mm-hmm. So this is talking about not a literal point of existence, but more about in that time period, there's a sense of chaos. Mm-hmm. And so this is why I think whenever um, looking into the Hebrew phrases for um, formless and void to describe the earth in verse two of Genesis, if I'm correct, there are two Hebrew phrases that is known as bohu and tohu. These are very connected friends. Mm-hmm. And as you'll see, you'll see evidence of unproductivity and chaos. So try to keep that in mind since I'm throwing a lot of words. Right. And so if you look into the Enuma Elish, the um, epics of Atrahasis, Assyrian Carrefour tablets, they always start off with um, a circumstantial clause, which is the first stage of where um, the materials are called out. Secondly, the materials are given direction. And then thirdly, they enter their climaxes of how they're completed for purpose and direction. And so looking into, for an example, the Enuma Elish, it begins not by saying which material things came into existence. The text itself is quite devoid of these claims. Instead, it focuses on assigning roles and how chaos was turned into order. So this is the Enuma Elish. I'll, I'll get on to Genesis. It begins with noting that the heavens and the earth were not named, the waters not divided, yet existing, no field or marsh 
had been formed and the gods have not been called into being. John Walton, a writer that I mentioned, points out that the original language is quite devoid of material creation and it is very easy for us reading in English to want to force this onto a text material and of our understanding. But this doesn't seem to be the purpose of the text or what the author's main focus on. Instead, the purpose of the text is explaining when the gods turn the chaotic cosmos into order, into the order that the world where civilizations could begin, this is an account of functional origins, not material origins. So this is talking about what is the material, this chaos, this chaotic water, this chaotic cosmos is giving purpose and direction. And so with that in mind, we need to remember that this cultural background for the biblical world, we need to keep this in mind that when we read the biblical text, understanding their cultural background can shed light on the text, what's understood to an ancient audience. However, when Genesis 1 is translated in the English, it is often done without its cultural context. And from looking at the Enuma Elish, what I explained, you can kind of get an idea of what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So another point to make is that this makes Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or how it's supposed to be translated, when God began to create the heavens and the earth. Sound like an expressing absolute beginning point, but it's not supposed to be translated as in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like we, we, we <laughs> geez, I had a seizure there. <laughs> like what we could expect to be the case of a modern creation account, the biblical Hebraic and Septuagint texts do not refer its first phrases as in the beginning, but more about when. So it's not talking about an absolute time point. Mm-hmm. But however, in the New Testament, such as passages such as uh, John chapter 1, verse 3, and Colossians uh, 1, verse 16, it talks about absolute points created by God. For an example, back to first, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, starting at verse 15. I'm going to try to paraphrase it. I don't know it quote-unquote, but it says... Um, for Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, whenever it refers to firstborn of all creation, it, the Greek phrase is prototokos, P-R-O-T-O-K-O-S. It means a premiums of error inheritance, but if you read in context, it's not talking about him being created and him given power, but it's through him that he creates all things. It's by him alone. Mm-hmm. And so... Okay, so back to, um, man, I kind of lost my way <laughs> right there. <laughs> You're fine. But, um, just okay. the camera. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> oh, geez. But, I mean, um, but that, that makes sense what you're saying because <clears throat> before, because, I mean, the, the way that it, it talks, uh, the Bible, um, uh, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, yada, yada. Um, and then he made Adam, and then he made Eve. And, you know, uh, Eve ate the apple from the tree because Lucifer was a snake, and he, yada, yada. Not necessarily. Honestly. honestly it's a yes and no. Honestly, it doesn't say apple. True. 
It says the fruit of the forbidden tree. Right. The tree of knowledge. Tree of okay. knowledge of good and evil. But, you know, we also know that Lucifer was once an angel mm-hmm. who Cherub. led a rebellion uh, against the Silver City, quote-unquote Silver City, mm-hmm. and he was cast out of heaven. <coughs> okay, but... If God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, when did this angel war happen? It actually happened in, like, literally whenever Adam and Eve ate to forbidden fruit. You'll actually see that in chapter 3. So I actually make a case of where Zechariah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah are talking about the same instances of where Lucifer, like, from that very moment. So what basically happens is that, um, so God told told Adam and Eve do not eat from this tree but Eve added her own tradition of saying don't eat of this tree plus don't touch it and so whenever Eve told uh, the Nahash which is a Hebrew phrase for what we know as snake but it could also be translated as diviner serpentine being or the third one it's it's said by uh, Dr. Uh, Michael S. Heiser who uh, sadly passed about a few months ago it's written in his book uh, The Unseen Realm but he rec- Satan or the Nahash recognizes that and uses that tradition against her that she made up to not touch it. God never said that. And so he told her, he's like, oh, touch it. You'll be fine. And so she touches it. She's fine. So he's pulled her in by her own tradition instead of trusting what God said. Right. Okay. <sighs> well, I mean, you know, I, it's just... Um, He's Satan. He does shit like that. Yeah. You know, but but again, uh, having an idea, and if if a person or a being, if you will, was once this way, and they felt this way, another way, and they went against it. Do they completely turn their back on everything? Hmm. Or are they still generally the same person? Uh, case in point, the show Lucifer. Okay, it's it's a show. It's based on a character in a comic book series. I got it. But one thing about the show that makes you kind of think, Lucifer cannot lie in the show he can't lie and um, in the show his power is pulling out your your inner desire you know he he's not um, because the the war if I'm not mistaken started because and, and okay this makes sense uh, in the chapter three because God gave man free will, where angels don't have free will. Not necessarily. I mean, of course, Lucifer and the angels that sided with him, whenever, which I would say happened literally at the Garden of Eden, due to given other passages of scripture, which ties up with a lot of Egyptian customs. If you, um, okay, I'll explain it whenever we get to chapter three. Mm-hmm. But I can see your point there, but like 
lot of people uh, had a question about this, but why aren't angels redeemed but only human beings are? The angels saw the glory of God in full. Right. They they saw him in full glory, and they were glorified by his righteousness and his goodness. They decided to say, screw that, let me create my own, which is a very devious and lesser version of it that cannot progress. And so on, so to speak, you spiritually die. And since you disconnected yourself from him, you will be eternally separated from him. And this is why I'll also look into the subject of hell. People think it's like, oh, burning sulfur, uh, literal fire. Not, not, ne- not necessarily. Like looking to the passage of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man is talking to Lazarus and Abraham while he's supposedly on fire. He's having a full-fledged conversation with him, but he's so out of touch with reality because of how insane he is. He tells Lazarus, even though he knew that he could have helped him out and served him while he was still alive, he told him, resurrect yourself, help me, tell my brothers about this place. So, to, okay, just to point, point at this and, you know, move on to right here, hell is in a place of literal fire, but it is, the fire's there, but it's not literal, but it's metaphorical for a fate far worse than that. It's narcissistic self-absorption. And I would say the best person that could describe hell in a metaphorical story is C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce. So... In his book, there are people in hell. They're just wandering around, you know, aimlessly in narcissistic self-absorption. And so they start, start thinking, I wonder what heaven's like. So they're able to get access to a bus to go to heaven. Uh, it's kind of weird. but yeah. So they get there, and they're greeted by a spirit. It's probably a short bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it might have been a short bus. But they're looking at the windows. (laughs) (laughs) But they got there and they were greeted by a spear or an angel, someone that, you know, died and was there. And so they were seeing this place, heaven, and it was like, hey, this is a very beautiful place. Feels pretty nice here. And so the longer that they started staying there, they started to describe their surroundings like the beautiful grass becomes shards of needles. The sun becomes like feeling boils of hot heat. And the angel says, well, okay, don't go away. If you stay here, it'll get used to it. And one of them also describes that the ground is like, you know, cactuses, stepping on cactuses. And so they become so irritated with the place that they actually decide to go back to hell. Now, what's the general idea? The general idea of hell is that Hell is a place of not just literal fire, but it's what you cultivate in your life, what you put your identity on. This is what the great Cicero himself said. What is the shonen bonum? What is the highest order of means of good? Is it to live for yourself or is it to live to, to the standard, the standard, the standard meaning God and yourself, yourself. You get to make up whatever you please, whatever you do. And so whenever you put your identity in that, not just like general sense of evil, but whatever you put your identity in, heck, it could be like good things. Mm-hmm. Take Job, for example. Job wasn't an innocent guy. If you look at, for example, Noah and Job, they were both good people. While Noah walked with God, Job didn't. 
so something's wrong if you read in like in chapter one of Job. He's put his identity into what we call moralism. The idea where, oh, I said the good things, I did the good things, I did this, I did that, I made a covenant with myself to not look at a woman with lust, as he says in Job chapter 21. He's put his entire identity into his own good works to think that God could fill his own pockets and that got him to a very dark place very dark place so much that even his own family like it was a cultural thing it wasn't just him his friends come by and says oh you must have did something wrong mm-hmm. you said the wrong things like even when you're, you look at him suffering he's praising God with his mouth but his heart says something else right mm-hmm. so it's it's like it's a lot you know a lot of thinking about that mm-hmm. which is like the main reason well almost the main reason why Christ came because Moralism was taking over the culture of people. They were missing the relationship with God and God's um, like free gift of salvation through Christ. And the Pharisees were very moralist. As Christ said in Matthew, he said, uh, you praise me, well, you praise God with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. So they have their own intention. So, like, using God in advantage to fill their own pockets, that's what you would mm-hmm. look at, contrast moralism. And then there's hedonism, which, or being a hedonist, recognizing you're wrong and coming to God humbly, and he'll receive you. Mm-hmm. But, um, okay, back to uh, Genesis part. This happens from time to time on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, looking back into, you know, the phrase in the beginning it's not nowhere in the greek uh well septuagint which is like uh greek translation to english mm-hmm. the, oh what the heck are you doing good but uh um, john miller's <laughs> but um the phrase from an ancient near eastern perspective of course it's not talking about literal material creation but more about what happens to the materials now in the New Testament, John chapter 1, verse 3, and First Colossians chapter 1, well, Colossians 1, verse 16, talks about absolute creation of all things, materials. Mm-hmm. So why doesn't it not refer that in Genesis? Because that's not the key here. This mm-hmm. is talking about a period of time. Like, combining those two together, God creates a universe 13, 14.8 billion years ago. And since he's a being outside of time, time, space, and matter, since he created time, space, and matter, he's not limited by those, making him omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipotent. Mm -hmm. Of course, the other two are with him, in essence. You know, the big three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or in Mm -hmm. the Old Testament, they're referred as Yahweh, Spirit of Yahweh, and Angel of Yahweh. Now, whenever it refers to Angel of Yahweh, the Hebrew phrase for angel is melech means representative or messenger it can also be arguably translated to word so word of god mm-hmm. same thing with the new testament in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was god john chapter one verse one so back to the phrase in the beginning it's not supposed to be there in the english but it's supposed to be translated as when god began to create heavens and the earth mm-hmm. so a quote here looking into, um, well, actually, 
we'll meet up to another quote by uh, John Salehammer. So this makes verse 1 in the beginning, well, when God began to create the heavens and the earth. Verse 1, a dependent clause on verse 2. Verse 2 is a circumstantial clause. And theologically indicates that when God showed up to create the universe, the heavens and the earth, the earth was already formless and void. Now, formless and void. So it's not talking about literal material creation, but it's more about purpose and function. This is where bohu and tohu leads, because that's the Hebrew phrases for formless and void. Now, looking at um, in the next page, you'll see there are several passages where bohu and tohu, which are very connected words, like friends, speaks of unproductive land, a barren wasteland, um, a desert place, a dead corpse, a, um, a vase and barrel without purpose. So it's not to say that, you know, these are literal material creations, but more about talking about creation as being unproductive and untamed. Mm-hmm. It needs to be controlled. It needs to be pr- directed. So think of it this way. With the combination of what we know of science today, mm-hmm. fine-tuned principles, take for an example, uh, what was it, the, the cosmological constant. It is one-tenth in the power of 159. That's the measurement of it, if I'm correct. Now, what does that measurement mean? What does it do? It keeps the strong, weak, gravitational electromagnetic forces intact in order for high concentration of evolutionary elements from the Big Bang Mm -hmm. to produce. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get like a number graph of that, put 1 in 10 and then write 159 zeros. You have that chance in order to get it right for a universe, Mm -hmm. in order for elements, for protons and electrons and helium atoms to produce other elements. Right. But if you get that even much more quicker or any less, you either collapse the entire universe or all the elements will burn up I vastly. Was, I was just listening to the podcast this week, Rogan's podcast, and I can't remember the guy's name. I'd look it up. but And he was talking about the f- formation of the galaxies and stuff like that. He said our galaxy, he said to, to create a stable galaxy is very, very, very hard to do. You said there's a lot of galaxies that's that's been that's been produced or or formed that just fell apart almost instantly because they weren't stable. It is said for our galaxy to be stable like it is because he was into quantum quantum computing and quantum physics and stuff like that. Jeez, oh, yeah, <laughs> it was it was pretty deep. I was like, wow, okay, that makes sense. You know, he said there could be billions of galaxies out there. Or billions. Yeah. That's what maybe millions. Millions, billions, trillions. I'd I probably say yeah. millions, maybe you know? not near a billion. But, you know, and but he said ours is pretty pretty miraculous the way it has formed and stayed together. You know, even though we have stars burning out and going supernova. They just had a picture of one. I uh, forget where, where it was now. But it's hundreds of thousands of light years away, but this mm-hmm. sun has... It went supernova, and they figure it was probably like 30,000 years ago, but we're just now seeing the light. And there was a planet, and they go, this this is the Earth's future, because it went just sucked up by that sun, <laughs> you know? Jeez. <laughs> so, but they, you know, and when they're talking about creation, you know, was void and everything, maybe that was as the planet was forming, 
Yeah, well, yeah. it was in the so, state of chaos. And yeah, so that's, look, like, what I was thinking. So here in about a few pages, I think, where is it exactly? So this, like, the seven-day period has very big connections with the tent of the tabernacle, you know, like the tent and uh, in the desert mm-hmm. where they had uh, the Levites, the high priests, 12 tribes of Israel. Right. It's very connected with that. The seven days are supposed to be taken literal, but more about symmetrically of what God does in order to make his cosmic temple. So God creating a universe 13.8 billion years ago, and he, even though he's a timeless being, Time is really nothing to him. Mm-hmm. And so he's pulling forth. Um, oh, shoot. I haven't gotten there yet. So hold on. <laughs> so so looking into uh, formless and void, of course, a lot of young earth creationists. I used to be a young earth creationist until I started thinking of, like, how could, if evolution is true, which most likely it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, archaeology, looking at past prehistoric humans and how they uh, connect with, you know, apes. Mm-hmm. How can that be compatible with Scripture, which that will go up to uh, Adam and Eve? First, you know, Darwin's theory of evolution, he never said man evolved from ape. Oh, he, he never did? Nope. Oh. Nope. He just said that, you know, life formed as a single cell, which that happens every time a girl gets pregnant. Yeah. There's two cells come together. Oh, and they start multiplying. Yeah, half of the father and half of the mother. Yep, you know half of the chromosomes, every, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, starts out there's two single cell organisms, and they're floating along, that. and you'll get canceled. <laughs> Hope we do. Then we'll be famous. Yeah, as long as, as long as we make CNN, man, we're good. <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> Call Rogan, say hey. Uh, we just got canceled. We're on CNN. Can we be on your show now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. But, so back to the idea of formless and void. A lot of young earth creationists would say that uh, the original Hebrew didn't have vowel points so that we can't use that to indicate how the original authors read verse 1. However, the argument could be made from the Hebrew grammar and usage elsewhere. So this is where John Salemore, in his book Genesis Unbound, pages 38 to 40, he says, and I quote, the Hebrew word reshit refers to the term beginning used in the chapter has a very specific sense in scripture. In the Bible, the term always refers to an extended yet interminate duration of time, a period of time. Mm -hmm. So this also applies, this can also apply with days, which is, it's like, whoa. So wait, the term, like beginning, doesn't mean an absolute point of beginning. Like, it has to depend on the context of the passage. And so, this is what I look like also would make in, uh, for an example, Job chapter 8, verse 7. It says, And though your beginning, Reshit, the Hebrew phrase, was small, your latter days will be great. In Job chapter 8, verse 7, the word Reshit, beginning, refers to an early part of Job's life before his misfortunes overtook him. Not an absolute beginning point, but a period of time whenever that began. Right. Another case I could uh, see here is um, Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 1. It's a, it's a part of verse 1. It says, In that same year, at the beginning, Reshit, of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. 
first thing we need to know in this passage is that the king's first year did not begin with an accession to the throne, but later on the first day of the coming new year. Secondly, prior to the new year, the king would reign up until this point under a premolarity period of time. So it's not talking about, like, you know, literally just like very uh, first point on at the beginning, king, right mm-hmm. there. It's talking about a period of time. Mm-hmm. So Jeremiah in this passage is referring to a premolarity time period of the king's beginning reign in the same language is used in Genesis 1.1. Supporting the idea that the verse refers to a temporal Genesis uh, duration instead of an absolute beginning point. Now, of course, to the New Testament, there was an absolute beginning point, and also science shows that. So this is talking about a period of time after God created the entire cosmos mm-hmm. into this chaos water. And so after some period of time of, you know, adjusting, mm-hmm. this interdimensional being, all-powerful being, steps in within our realms, and he starts taking the laws of physics into purpose and direction, and he's making his way to humanity. And you'll see this in the tent of the tabernacle here soon. So Selhammer notes that this supports an extended period of chaos. So, you know, the... Um, you know the graph of where like there's that tube where it shows the galaxy's beginning point and then there's mm-hmm. us right god creates a universe however long ago even though it says you know there's no exact period point of mm-hmm. whenever everything began because it's not talking about material creation but in context later on in other texts colossians 116 john 1 3 and what we know in science mm-hmm. He creates a universe out of chaos, and universe, of course, over time, it cools off. Materials start to evolve. Atoms start to adjust. And then after at some period of time or within that duration, he's going in there and giving purpose and direction to the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. Like, that's insane. Mm-hmm. Now, it's kind of look like it's kind of confusing to adjust that with the, the literal days, which I'll show you. Mm-hmm. But... We got now, showed. Oh. One second. Yeah. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to stop for now. Okay. But tune in next week because we are going to have Tyler back. We're going to finish this conversation and we're going to learn more on this. So, um, on that note, you've just watched another episode of Stu Him Productions Presents. JDM, solve the world. I've been James. And I've been Matt. And until next time, you keep one fist in the gold, one foot in the gutter, and we will be seeing you. Peace.